Hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Uh, it's great to be with you. We're excited to be with you uh, today to discuss the topic of our show. Um, as always, my name is Will Stockdale. I am a ministry associate with Ministry to State, a ministry of the PCA here in Washington, D.C. Uh, here, as always, with my very good friend and colleague, fellow ministry associate, Robert Hassler, who is finishing up or almost finished up with his semester of seminary. Yep. Correct. Like three, more, three more days. Three more days. Three more days. Done. How many pages do you have to write? Uh, well, actually, this semester, less paper writing, more test taking. So I'm studying for a history test and I'm studying for a Hebrew test. And as soon as I get through those, then I'm basically in the clear because all of my, all my paper writing is super fascinating and interesting. So I I love that kind of stuff. I'm writing about the social gospelers uh, for my history class, which is just, is just fascinating. So good. It's good stuff to to learn and, and to read and to write. So, so you would find yourself more aligning with the social gospel people. Of course. I mean, I am going to use this entire podcast as a platform to tell you why you're not truly saved yet, Will, because you have not signed up for Christian socialism. So, okay, good. I'm glad to know. We're just going to clear the air and say that that was a joke. That was a full throated joke and denial. Um, but maybe we could, once you finish the semester, once you finish doing um, your work, maybe we can take a look at uh, this idea of the social gospel in the. Um, in the 1920s, or I guess before, because your person that you're talking about was before, so we can go a little bit before that to the late late 19th century. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and uh, they asked why uh, the church has been so misunderstood recently. Like, why do people lump it so closely with the particular brand of politics? And and I think in 2022, would be most people associate conservative Christianity with explicitly Republican politics and Republican Party line. And what I thought immediately was like, you know, if you were to go back and wind the clock back about a hundred years, uh, the prominent leaders in the Christian church, the mainline Protestant denominations are actually very aligned with a more liberal agenda. And so uh, that changed after World War II in a lot of ways, uh, or after World War I, I should say. But it's an interesting question to look at the way that church and politics have aligned over time and what that looks like in our current landscape and understanding it as something that is not just as a historical uh, anomaly, um, but as something that has evolved and shaped its way over time. But again, yeah, as if, we have you, to say- if you have a problem with Christian nationalism, wait till you read the social gospelers. <laughs> you have not mm. seen anything yet. <laughs> well, I guess before it, it, that is another form of uh, Christian nationalism, though, you could say it, yeah. it, it is not as explicit in its um, institutional forms, but is a, a social side, of course, a sociological cultural side of that same project, uh, yeah. which is like an informal uh, requirements for Christianity or for a society to be good must follow. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah, uh, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch explicitly talked about the redeeming society and redeeming uh, social uh, relationships. So he, he, yeah, he's he's all in on uh, using whatever means of power is, is is possible to to Christianize the social order. Well, 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 again, we're going to save that, Robert. You put all this into a nice paper, and then you can read it to us, and then we can come back to it at another time. For sure. I'll but, do that. Uh, one of the things that Robert and I wanted to talk about, and it's something that's probably been on your mind, probably something that has 
come up and you've seen or you've discussed it with someone, maybe you've scrolled through it on Twitter, maybe you've read an article someone has emailed to you, um, and even another specific article, you, you probably had some interaction in the past of something around this topic. Um, and my Saturday was interrupted by an article by uh, a man um, who is an editor for First Things named James R. Wood. Interesting background, James Wood actually went to the same seminary I did in Dallas. So James was at Redeemer Seminary, finished in 2015, I believe. Uh, he finished in Austin. I was in Dallas. So we never overlapped taking classes. Um, and then he was at a church called Grace and Peace in Austin for a while and then went on to get his PhD. Um I don't know him personally. I've never met him, um, but was a PCA pastor, church planner, or helped help lead a church. But he wrote an article titled How I Evolved on Tim Keller. And maybe we should say for the start, uh, the title may not have been the most helpful um, in the sense that it is more how I evolved on a particular aspect of Tim Keller's pastoral uh, legacy and um theological approach. It is it is one particular area. So uh, he goes on, we can talk about the article in a second. Uh, we're actually more interested, I think, in the fallout of this because it uh, created no little controversy uh, in the, not just the Twitter sphere, but I mean, just um, any kind of conversation. Uh, it, it seems to have been uh, something that, that really got people worked up. Um, but Robert, I want to kick it over to you. When you first read it, and then maybe just lay out a little bit of this article, how it's structured, um, and what what responses you've seen from people. Yeah. Well, I think you you can't divorce the article from this just kind of crazy timing uh, that all of this, all these events happened at the same time. So, really, this 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 thing begins with. Um, uh, Tim Keller himself had a very interesting thread. I'll say, I'll use that word interesting thread on Twitter about um, abortion policy in America and uh, basically made the argument um, that uh, the Bible, while it tells us that abortion is wrong, does not necessarily give us uh, the best means for how to handle it in American politics um, and, uh, of course that received a lot of interesting pushback, both from people within his own, I'll say confessional heritage, uh, so kind of coming to that same question with, um, similar, uh, convictions about church state relations, for example. Um, and then also people who don't share, uh, necessarily a, a more Westminsterian understanding of the, of the civil magistrate. So very interesting kind of as a, as a kind of a test case for kind of where do these different strains of conservative evangelical, there's actually a lot of differences there about exactly how do we approach this question of politics. So the thread kind of served as this, as this interesting moment, but what was really fascinating was as so many uh, kind of were disappointed by that thread, we got the, the leak out of the Supreme court that wrote that Roe v. Wade uh, was uh, hopefully to, to be overturned. And so you have this kind of in crazy timing, but all these things happening, um, and then James Wood's piece comes out, and I'm sure James Wood's piece has been in the process prior to this thread. Um, it's a long piece; it's very personal, so I imagine that it's been kind of thought about for a while. But it gets published uh, just a few days after um, the leak, and so all of these things coming together at one time created this kind of, I think, uh, powder keg to kind of have the discussion about, you know, 
okay, where are we as a, uh, you could say maybe a movement or you could say as a, um, uh, a church on quote unquote Kellerism. I think that's really what's happening here. Um, because if you actually look at the piece that James Wood wrote, which we can kind of transition to that, um, it is nothing but appreciative, respectful, and honoring to Tim Keller, the man. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, um, I want to jump back just a little bit before we get there. This one thread uh, that has generated a lot of uh, dialogue. I mean, a lot of people have talked about this where he said, you know, um, the Bible tells us that we should love the immigrant and the sojourner, but doesn't tell us what our immigration policy. And likewise, it says that we shouldn't kill lives, shouldn't allow murder, but doesn't tell us what abortion policy. And I, I thought that was very poorly thought out. Um, because if it's a life, it's a life, first of all. And second of all, the I know for sure that I shouldn't kill the immigrant. Like, <laughs> regardless of what my immigration policy is, I know that it is wrong to to kill someone just because they came into uh, my country. Right. Um, so the closer correlation would have been how do we care for mothers with children in the womb? Um, how do we how do we provide for them and care for them as a society? So thing but our big question for today is is tim keller a baddie is tim (laughs) keller the bad guy uh and i'll 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 get out by saying no uh it's just it's just this one area um in in terms of of political theology that has some limitations but you go uh, go ahead go back to the james wood thing but i wanted to yeah i mean uh, i think i think you're exactly right right like this piece i think articulates very well what a lot of kind of at least from my experience talking to people about, you know, um, issues facing the Presbyterian church in America, or even sort of broader evangelicals about Tim Keller, this piece I think represents a very strong, uh, voice that I often hear, which is sort of a, a, a long string of appreciation for Tim Keller and what he's done in ministry. Um, the books that, that he's written that have made an impact on people. I mean, I, I, we were saying before we started recording, like, if you attend a PCA church or really if you attend kind of any real, you know, sort of conservative Orthodox evangelical church in uh, America today, if you're getting a sermon on the prodigal son, like you are probably going to hear quotes from Keller or ideas that come straight out of Keller's prodigal God book. Um, I mean, he has that kind of, I think, influence rightly so on people's ideas of how we exegete that passage and, and, draw application from it. Um, I think a lot of people uh, are very appreciative of the, his, his sort of movement to, to go back and plant churches in urban areas that were largely abandoned by Protestants um, uh, following uh, the sixties and seventies. And so I think a lot of people have given money to, you know, uh, redeemers like plant, you know, church plants in these urban areas, because they've, they've been convicted per Tim Keller, you know, that this is a, this is a place that we need to be. And we need to be uh, for the gospel for uh, these communities. And I think that's, that's always what I hear from people. What I often also hear in sort of at the end of that string of appreciations is exactly what James Wood articulates, which is in this very sort of small subset, particular area of Christian discourse, of or theological reasoning, I find Tim Keller wanting. That is a completely fair area to critique and argue and debate 
And I think people are looking to this tiny piece of Keller's um, uh, public statements, his his public theology, his political theology, his, his sort of Christian approach to politics and asking, you know, is this a fair thing to start critiquing right now? Is it a fair, is this, a, is this the time to start asking ourselves if this is um, uh, the way forward? And I think that, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, we are uh, now in sort of the post 2016 election landscape. There has been just innumerable, you know, uh, ink spilled discussing Christians relationship to politics there seems to be a sort of general sense that something is is happening, something's different, something's changing. Um, and in moments like that, you have opportunities to sort of reassess, you know, ha- is what we've been doing proper for the time that we're in now? Um, and the answer for that might be no. The answer to my, that might be yes, that we're having a debate. And I think um, this whole issue that the, the, the threat about abortion, the threat, the um, Roe v. Wade leak. And then now this article is sort of trying to present that uh, as sort of, this is the opportunity now to, to have this debate. I mean, what, what were your thoughts? What did you think of when you were reading this piece? I read it through the first time and thought he makes some solid points. Uh, I mean, the, the first six paragraphs are him praising Tim Keller. So he mentions how much he loves Tim Keller, that uh, he named his dog Keller, that he and his wife fell in love basically and got married because they were talking about reason of God together. Um, the church planning movement, he worked in an urban context uh, at, at his church in Austin. So the first thing was really just, uh, I would say, very winsome, was very kind, was very generous and gracious. And I think I would say the same thing. You know, I had no idea that Keller was controversial until I started working at a PCA church. Um, I have like, I think like 10 Keller books on my shelf. So I, I am very thankful for him. I am reason for God was the first thing that I read most recently. It's a prodigal prophet that he wrote hope in times of fear was really great. Um, uh, counterfeit gods encounters with Jesus is such a beautiful, uh, um, almost discussion, like six chapter, eight chapter book that just discusses people meeting with Jesus and all of it's so good. And I, I love Keller for all of that. And I think this article acknowledges it. And then, um, and so, so, so I, I'm thankful Keller, you know, I, I thought he got correct in acknowledging, um, the, all the benefits that, that the church has received from Keller. I mean, in some ways he's been like a J.I. Packer figure for us. People say C.S. Lewis, but I think uh, someone closer probably to a John Stott, J.I. Packer would probably be more fitting for us. Um, the pastoral role of Keller is is very particular that we have to acknowledge. I mean, he's, he's a pastor through and through. That's how, that is how he operates. He sees himself as a pastor. He cares for people as a pastor. He views his church planning for all the sociological interest that is there. It is, it is as a pastor. How do I do this as a pastor? And so that's, that's all there for him. Um, And so, but I thought he made some interesting points that there, there, that there is something lacking in, in Keller's approach for one, because it's not that robust. Um, it is not that filled out. The Tim Keller political theology out of all his whole body of work um, is not that robust. So for him to say he doesn't think that it's sufficient for the task seems to me to be like 
pretty obvious. Like that seems pretty fair, especially when you consider like his biggest work is center church and that's doing gospel mission as a church in the city. It is not about how do you have faithful political theology in the city? No, his book, his biggest, probably most academic book is about being a faithful church in the city. So that's what he's interested in. Um, and, and so of course that this wouldn't be, so anyways, read this article. Thought was interesting. Then I went online and saw all the people, I mean, everybody and their mom getting worked up about this article, um, saying that this article was basically derisive, that it was, that it was attacking a man who's dying of cancer, um, that somehow this piece was like anti-Keller in so far as like saying like, almost like, it's like they read one line and thought that we should no longer be kind, but it's almost like they thought that it was a no holds barred, take the culture by the throat, ring it out and go on a crusade. Um, but that's not it either. What was said, I was just so surprised that people got so worked up and so angry over a piece that was like pretty starting a debate. Like it was like, Hey, I, I don't think this works. Thankful for Kelly love him. There was not a single part of that essay that attacked his character there was not any of the cheesy like you know conservative the the conservative elites just want to be at their cocktail hours in manhattan he does not question keller's motives at all uh, his sincerity low-hanging fruit for the anti-kellerites i'll just say that like yeah. the whole this, the whole cocktail hour thing and i i'm, I'm just saying this i've lived in dc for eight years i've yet to be invited to one of these cocktail hours i don't know what that means i don't know that means if i have i've got the purity of a good populist but man, if someone's got an invitation with those parties, I'd love to just check it out one time. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, part of it, it's just kind of a lazy argument. It's just kind of, you, you, it's like a bulverism. You know, you go after the motives for what must be there. And he doesn't do any of that. Uh, he, I, I feel pretty gently points out um, what is wrong. Now, it struck me as like, you know, if we're not allowed to criticize one little part of someone's theology, that is like a tertiary issue here. It's not a primary or secondary issue in terms of theology, but a tertiary issue. I wonder if it shows just how wrapped up people are on the importance of getting our political theology correct. Like, but there's not even there's not even any room to to vary on it, which makes me think that that it is guarded much much too closely. Well, that that really starts to get at I think the heart of the problem because, you know, I think one thing that. Tim Keller was doing in the thread either implicitly or explicitly. I don't, I don't really know what he would say. Um, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think what a lot of people read as, you know, um, why are Christians getting so worked about up about politics? You know, the, these, this is a, this is a tertiary thing. Christians should not be dividing or uh, separating each other based on, let's say, you know, tax policy. The problem with that is that, what, what Christians like James Wood are talking about, or maybe some of the, you know, the good faith people at places like First Things or, you know, my own alma mater, Hillsdale College, Adam, Adam Carrington, a professor there has written a, a good piece kind of responding to some of this stuff. Um, what, one of the things that they'll point out is that we're not talking about tax policy, right? We're talking about very cut and dry moral issues like abortion and transgenderism in particular, that's sort of being added now as, as kind of one of the, the examples of this shift from a neutral world to a uh, negative world. Um, and 
what I think someone like James Wood is, is saying is that this apologetic approach to politics, which is kind of the way that he defines Keller's project, works fine when you are having political discussions with non-Christians about things like tax policy, right? You, you want to be winsome when you're having those conversations and, and not be uh, belligerent about something as sort of, you know, mundane as economic policy, um, as approaches to maybe even international affairs, things like this. Um, but what James Wood is saying is that that, that apologetic approach doesn't work when we're talking about issues like abortion, because Christians can't approach those issues in the same way. And that's not a problem with Christians. That's a problem with modern American society where we have politicized the, the pre-political. Um, and yeah. that to me defines the change in what, what we're experiencing as a church, right? That you can call it the, the neutral to negative world shift. There's all kinds of taxonomies you can go out and find there. But what's clearly happening is that the pre-political has been politicized. And that puts Christians in a difficult spot. Yeah, because I, I think for a lot of this, when you actually listen to the conversation, what's going on, it's not whether um, or not a law should be in place that outlaws abortion or or has a view of marriage that is between one man and one woman. It's that are you even allowed to say something contrary to the different or hold a belief that's different? And so I, I do get the sense, especially in a place like DC, that we are more closely in a place where you're not allowed to hold that belief even, uh, to hold that belief as part of the problem, um, which is indicative of of the bigger reality where this is actually and truly clearly a moral issue. And like you said, it is, it is pre-political. And when we talk about issues like abortion or marriage as political issues, they work themselves out in a political arena, but this goes before that and says, no, this is a, this is a more, a clearly defined moral ethical problem that we're, that we're facing. Um, and, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm never for, and I'm not saying you're suggesting this, but I'm never for being belligerent. Uh, I'm never for uh, being a jerk in conversation or for being um, abrasive with people I disagree with. That's not a right way to go about it. That That's just unnecessary. Uh, that doesn't mean though, that every time that I'm clear and kind about something, people think that I am being kind and friendly. So one of the issues in Wood gets here, and I, I think this is true, is that um, and I, I don't look winsomeness is great. There's nothing wrong with that, but it can't be our measure by whether or not we're being faithful. It can't be the metric for our faithfulness um, because that's up to other people to receive. And you know what? You can be the nicest person in the world who holds a view that someone hates and get worked up. Um, and to make it out, like I also want to say, you know, the winsomeness thing is almost the extent of, of Keller's political theology, which again, when, when Wood says something like, we need more than this. This isn't enough, which is basically what he says. It's like, well, yeah, duh. Um, and so, I, again, the, 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 the way that people got so worked up about this, and something I need to remember also is that but there are a ton of people in the public arena and in the uh, uh, church planning world, uh, urban pl like churches, that Keller is their guy. Like Keller is their guy. And again, for as much as I love Keller, like I just, I just don't look to him for everything in that way. And so, because he has been such a model for so many people, for a lot of pastors who are faithfully ministering, um, any attack on them is, is, is like an existential threat to, to their, to their world. And, 
I think that's part of what is going on here is this feeling of you're striking at the vitals of an entire mode of ministry. And I can't stand for that. hundred percent. I think you're exactly right. Which is so ironic because I, I can't imagine anybody more who would be more upfront and saying, Hey, I think you guys have made you know, me or my ministry model into an idol. If there's anybody who's going to be quick to say that, I have to imagine it's Tim Keller. I mean, he's, he's done a great service to the church in reminding people of this, this problem of idolatry and, and where it can pop up. And I think, you know, yeah, you're exactly right. We do, we do him a disservice when we prop him up on a pedestal that he cannot, he, he and he knows that he can't fulfill for people. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, that's clearly what's going, what's going on um, is that people don't know how to handle, you know, a critique of their hero, much like, you know, much like, uh, uh, you know, someone like me, you know, I have a hard time listening to critiques of, you know, the Westminster assembly or the Westminster confession of faith. You know, this Will. when you, when I talk about Presbyterianism, you, you, I get defensive or when let's, you, let's when, make it, let's take it closer to home. Even let's do Hillsdale. Yes. Okay. Even, even better. I'm wrecking my polo right now. Yeah. Like Hillsdale can't do any wrong in my eyes. And yeah. And I think that speaks to the, the personal attachment that I have to that institution and the personal attachment that a lot of people have to Keller. I mean, for a lot of plant church planters, right? Like they're doing this work because they read a Tim Keller book, right? Their whole no. identities are wrapped up in this movement. Um, and not to say, you know, that, you know, uh, they shouldn't have a zeal for the ministry that they're doing. If the Lord has put that on their heart, that that's what they should be doing. Um, but I do think that uh, we have to be very careful about the way that we approach heroes um, and things like that. Cause I, I definitely think that's, that's going on here. You know, you, you, you mentioned, I want to go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one thing I want to say, um, this has been predicted for a while. I think Jake Metter had writ- written a piece on this years and years ago about what was going to happen uh, when Keller retired, there's going to be a vacuum there and someone's going to succeed. And in this article, he pointed out, you know, typically the successor of great pastors like Keller aren't as well known. So um, there are exe- exceptions that he points out, like Augustine succeeded Ambrose was gr- more well known than Ambrose, for example. Um, but there is a, a vacuum, I think, that is going to be, especially as he's retired, like he's just not as prominent as he was. And so what are Christians going to do as a response? And we're getting to our pastoral application here, maybe early, but man, uh, read the word, pray and take the sacraments with your brothers and sisters in Christ in person, as often as you can talk to them in a loving way and understand what is going on. Keep the main thing, the main thing, let the secondary tertiary quaternary things go further down. Um, but you know what we also want to warn against, like you can get this spiral off into uh, what Keller wouldn't want, which would be like a, um, far social gospelization of his message that turns it into uh, that unless every city, uh, every business, every institution is transformed to be a realized eschatology here on earth, that we haven't done our job. The other side is that you jump onto like a James Lindsay type of Christianity on the far right that is like, um, you know, Christianity is weak, uh, sounds a lot like Nietzsche to start out. Uh, Christianity is weak, it's not strong enough. It doesn't have the courage to fight and take down, you know, these, it's like, holy smokes, what are you, what are you talking about? So uh, we'd want to warn off both of those as we're going to have to learn to navigate this territory that is um, 
um, has some big openings. And uh, anyways, I would just hopefully we warn off against both of those and the right application for this would be word sacrament and prayer means of grace with brothers and sisters in Christ in our churches. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't help but think that a lot of this has to do with just sort of cultural differences between people who live in cities, people who live in suburbs and people who live in rural areas. I mean, um, I think that kind of what you're talking about is an embracing of the community into which you've been called um, and kind of focusing on that, you know, in the taxonomy of, you know, the people that are part of this conversation, right. You've got, you've got Tim Keller himself. You've got the sort of the Kellerites, the people that sort of see themselves as his followers. You've got the anti-Kellers. Um, but then like, because of everything that's going on, you, you start seeing other developments, right? So you have, now I think you basically have a, a, a group, which, you know, you could, I bet even James Wood himself might agree with this, might even lump themselves in this category based on how much applause he gives to Tim Keller in the sort of anti, anti-Keller group, right? Um, and I'm sure think, Tim Keller's grabbing himself by his bald head going, yeah. you people need to, what have I done? <laughs> well, not, I'm. I'm sure he's like, y'all need to chill out. And, yeah. uh, and so when I survey the anti Keller crowd, like when I see their discourse, I can't help but notice that there is uh, kind of veiled within some of the commentary as like, a, I'm mad at Manhattan Christians for acting like they live in Manhattan. And that to me seems to be a very weird critique. Um, I mean, people just have different ways of living in different places. I mean, local communities have various cultures and yeah, of course uh, a, a Manhattan church plant is going to look and sound and feel like a Manhattan church plant. It's not going to feel and look like a church plant in rural Texas or um, the wet, the West coast. And so I think we have to kind of be um, gracious in that way. Even if somebody who's, you know, I'm not, really inclined towards uh, a lot of the urban or city righteousness that you hear from a lot of sort of uh, Northeast people, both in the church and out. I mean, I live in DC. A lot of people think DC is the greatest place in the world. Honestly, like I love Texas. I would love to live in, you know, someplace like that. Um, But this is where the Lord has called me and that's, that's fine. And I I have to sort of um, understand God's sovereignty and plan and those, those kind of things. And we need to understand that God's sovereign plan is that he's calling people to himself in all kinds of different places from all different kinds of cultures of all different people with all different various temperaments and, and moods that have nothing to do with one's salvation or relationship before God. Um, if everyone in heaven is exactly like me, it's going to get really boring really fast. Um, and so I'm thankful for the, opp- for the opportunity of people like Tim Keller, who have gone to places like urban areas like New York City um, and some of his people who have gone to places like Chicago and others, you know, and have, have won souls uh, for the kingdom uh, in places like that. And the, the kingdom is better for it. And I think we have to kind of realize that when we're critiquing Kellerism, that we're not just sort of sliding in cultural preferences along with it, because I don't think that's a fair, a fair critique. That's a good word. And I, and I, I'm, I'm with you in the, um, that Keller has planted his church and, and his minister exactly where he is supposed to be uniquely in a, in a Manhattan type of way. And, um, there's no reason to expect that to be a different, um, 
uh, than it is. And it does come off as being very resentful and bitter. Uh, that just doesn't help. And I, and I think the other side is, look, um, we, we are going to need to be able to talk with each other within the church on this. And um, when these screeds come out against this particular article, shutting it down, accusing him of basically slandering someone um, of, of that article by David French, that was the devolution basically of the new Christian right. I was like, look, there certainly is a Christian right that is devolving morally. There is a new conservative movement that is, I would say, morally devolving and in a very unhealthy place. This article does not depict that. And so to put anything that doesn't agree with you into a camp of an actual issue turns people off and actually doesn't allow for um, better solutions to be put forth and for us to actually work together to figure out, um, you know, in his book, Center Church, one of the things that Keller points out is that it seems that the two kingdoms and the transformation are coming a little bit more towards the middle and a little bit more in agreement on each other. So in one sense, like, hey, maybe hopefully we do get a little more agreement between these two views on how we should engage in politics and people just don't stay entrenched in their own camps. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. Um, and you know, this is, this is going to continue to be an, an issue. Um, you know, the access of information that we have about other places that we're nowhere near, um, is going to continue to fuel this. Um, so I think your, your pastoral advice of sort of, you know, just, you know, logging off and focusing on where the Lord has called you into what community that he's called you is going to be incredibly, I think, helpful. Um, for people. But I also think that um, we are going to have to seriously wrestle about, you know, Christians engagement in politics, especially in what I would ar- argue is this change in the politicization of the pre-political. And uh, we are going to have to work through those questions of how do we engage in a, you know, loving manner with things as morally reprehensible as um, gender conversion, uh, uh therapy that's often promoted as the way of handling uh, issues like um, gender dysphoria. Uh, how are we going to deal with the church as a church as uh, things like gay marriage are more and more institutionalized in the post Obergefell world? We're, we're going to have to deal with that. Um, and uh, I think wrestling through this political theology is a project that's going on right now. And we can't just sort of simply say, well, because it gets a little heated sometimes. And because people are disagreeing, we have to just stop. Uh, we have, we have to work through these things as a church and the church has done this multiple times and we, and the Lord has always been gracious um, uh, through it. And he's working even in, in the midst of that. So I think that's, that's kind of my takeaway as well. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, let, let us land there. Then I I'm reading a book by Michael Horton, who's a systematic theology guy out, as you know, out in Western seminary, California, um, and it's called Recovering Our Sanity. And uh, one of the things that he asks, you know, is people love to quote Francis Schaeffer in terms of his uh, sexual ethics and his abortion views. However, uh, not as much about his condemnation of racism, um, as well as his call for Christians to care more for the environment. And, you know, we can and should do all of those things Uh not in necessarily a third way so much as like a biblically sane way to, to use some Michael Horton language um, to be sane and not crazed 
remembering that that fearing God is what comes first. So with that in mind, I appreciate you landing us there, Robert. And um, it'll just be interesting to see how all of this continues to shake out. Uh, we, we, we need to be praying already about 2022 and especially 2024. I just, um, uh, Christ uh, will keep his church. Uh, God has a people to himself. Yes. Uh, does that mean that we may not face some major, major turbulence and bumps? No, we're not, uh, we're not, uh, um, protected from that completely. So uh, we do need to be praying for that, but thanks you all for listening. Um, you can check us out at, uh, on Twitter. Robert is at Artie Hassler. I'm at Stockdale. We'll check out ministry state at ministry state.org. And if you have any friends or know of anybody who is coming to Washington, DC, um, for a summer internship, let us know, check out our website, ministry state.org. And, and I would love to get connected with them to honor for our t- uh, Tuesday evening programming. And with that, we'll see you next week.